welcome to Turn the Page, the official podcast of the Syosset Public Library. Welcome to Turn the Page Podcast. My name Thanks is Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, this is Jessica, um, Turn the Page Podcast, Syosset Public Library. I'm really excited uh, to have the author of the book, Wolvish, um, Erica Berry here. This is a really interesting book, and um, I'm going to invite Erica to tell us about Wolvish and just sort of where it came from, and then we can go from there. Sure. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here um, and, yeah, honored to be in conversation with you. So, Wolfish originally got its start about a decade ago when I was researching the repopulation of wolves in my home state of Oregon for my environmental studies thesis um, as an undergraduate. And I had grown up in the city myself, but my grandparents were both kind of on farms rurally, and I was interested in the return of wolves that was so controversial. Um, it becomes a very political issue, and I f feel like um, I was sort of interested in wolves as what do they actually represent, because very often when we're talking about about them. They become sort of laden with um, all of these other meanings and projections. And so then it wasn't until a few years later, um, I was grabbed by a stranger on a dark street when I was in graduate school. And that was maybe one moment where suddenly I started thinking about symbolic wolves and Little Red Riding Hood and the stories that I'd been taught about them. And I, I didn't want to tie wolves to that moment, but I was like, maybe I can't just write about real wolves because very often, even when real wolves are talked about in media headlines, the symbolic wolf is like there, it's a shadow. And I wanted to sort of um, explore the relationship to untangle the symbolic wolf from the real wolf, but also to think about some of those stories I'd metabolized about the wolf, the big bad wolf, and what that meant um, growing up as a young woman in America. There's many stories around fear and wilderness and uh, freedom and America itself that I thought uh, the wolf sort of helped us illuminate. Um, so it's an exploration into those stories. And it was broken up into like many different um, parts, you know, and you talk a bit about um, what you were just talking about, the politicization and just wolves in general. Um, I come from the um, East Coast, where that is not something we generally deal with. Wolves are, you know, like these like magical creatures almost. Um, and um, it's funny because um, I have a friend who has like four huskies and it is almost like he has a pack of wolves in his house. Um, but in general, there's a lot of talk about, you know, like how dogs evolved from wolves and how, you know, like the, the difference between like, you know, the, um, the a wolf that could be more domestic versus not. I mean, I look at like something like a chihuahua. I'm like, how? That makes no mm -hmm. sense to me. How one mm -hmm. can go from one to another. Um, but in stories, wolves take a lot of um, a, a lot of us a, a front and center stage. Um, so you know, you you talk about um, obviously Little Red Riding Hood comes up a lot. Um, girl versus wolf, town versus wolf, troop versus wolf, country versus wolf self versus wolf and mother versus wolf how did you decide well and and you also talk about and i thought that this was really interesting um because you were talking before about the symbolic wolf you were talking about a uh, some summer camp that you went to um where you know it was supposed to be like a female empowerment summer camp and in a way it was more like how 
it was, I, I don't know. I, I have my own interpretation of it. I'll let you talk about it. But um, how did you sort of start to break this down and do your research? And then how did you um, metabolize the personal into the um, research narrative? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, first, that that summer camp, I think, um, was an example of growing up in Oregon. I'm a millennial, and I sort of came of age of this kind of girl power generation um, where it was like, you can do anything. And it was this very hippie kind of, I, we didn't have grades at my school. I went to a summer camp where we, you know, we're just like set out into the woods and told to go like hike by ourselves and find our spirit animal. Like that was our activity. You know, it was very sort of um, almost new agey in a sense. Um, and I think when I was there, though, they were telling us, like, men are going to be really dangerous. So, like, be careful and, like, don't go on a date with them. And suddenly I was like, this is actually not very progressive. This is telling us that we should live in fear. Um, and I'd never been taught to be afraid. Like, I'd come, my parents really tried to raise me as this, like, brave, independent woman. And I had was very privileged as a young girl and adolescent that I didn't really have many of the scary experiences that other young women do. It wasn't until I sort of left the house that I felt kind of aware of the ways that my female body um, was read by other people and could be, um, it could, it was, uh, I felt like my, like I was inviting situations that I didn't want. Um, of course, I wasn't inviting them. But so I think at some point I was thinking about the wolf in sort of the big bad wolf stories and the way that if i was going to look at who the wolf was supposed to be in those stories very often the wolf was constructed based on who it was chasing and so who was the girl supposed to be in those stories and it was um sort of in looking at how i thought about the symbolic wolf i started thinking about how what I had been taught about fear. And very often I think we talk about how do you grow out of your fears? But I became interested in like, how did I grow into them? Um, how does a girl learn to feel afraid on the street? Because for many years, I didn't feel afraid. I, I lived one of those um, you know, gifted childhoods that I didn't have to feel afraid when I was young. And so then when I, so yeah, I guess, to back up structurally this book, I started thinking about how, what was the construction of the wolf? Like, how was that shaped? Okay, there's fairy tales and the fairy tales are actually tied to really interesting things that are going on politically. And, you know, some of these in Western Europe where kings are paying people to kill the wolves and like they're deforesting the land. And that was all really interesting. Like that shapes a symbolic wolf. And then I had this other thread that was like, what is my relationship with fear and the stories and my own sense of the big bad wolf? And I was interested in these ideas of who gets to be predator, who gets to be prey? How do we think about those culturally? And so it sort of follows a loose chrono chronological trajectory through my kind of coming of age um, experience. Um, so the book begins with sort of me going to college and some experiences that had happened there, and then sort of moving into my early 30s where I eventually move home. And so I wanted to break down the idea of the wolf is very often talked about on binaries. Like it's a dog versus a wolf. It's a wolf versus a girl in the forest. And as we know with so many binaries, that's sort of false, right? Like what actually does separate a dog from a wolf? That's a really interesting question. It's more complex than I, than I thought. Um, and similarly, like 
the rancher versus the environmentalist. That's more complex too. Um, and so I liked the idea of structuring the book based around these different binaries that you're sort of caricaturing them and being like, here's the narrative, like the wolf is is out to get your family. Well, no, it's it's really not. Let's break that down. So some of the other things I thought were really interesting is you mentioned um, that um, in uh, like uh, different languages, words for wolf are also words for like robber and evildoer and outlaw. Was like, how did you come upon that information? That was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I really tried to go back to the very beginning of like, when did we start talking about the wolf in this way? Why is it not the big bad bear? Why is it not the big bad cougar? And part of that is that wolves have this tremendous range where they've lived on so many continents and they sort of, you know, they they move, um, they're quite prolific and they disperse huge distances. That's what it's called when a wolf leaves its pack. And so they have this really resilient ability um, to move around. And so in trying to trace like how far back, if I wanna like take apart the big bad wolf, how far back do I go? And I found that it was sort of like in very, very early forms of English and other languages as well. It's sort of very ingrained into the codes. Um, and so I think of this book as researched omnivorously, like. I just was not afraid of going into an area that I didn't understand. And that meant going down a lot of rabbit holes. I would use Google Scholar. And some of this was during the pandemic. I couldn't go to libraries. Um, so I was really, you know, on these library research websites. I mean, interesting talking to you at a library, right? Like there's these tremendous resources that you can use archivally of old magazine databases and scholarly databases. And I was just sort of, um, it was like putting my net out there and seeing what would stick related to wolf. And I would find a story written by an ancient Greek scholar about how wolves were sort of conceptualized as battle imagery in the ancient training young ancient Greek male warriors. And suddenly that helps me see, oh yeah, these conflations go back thousands of years. Um, and so, yeah, a big shout out to libraries in the process of researching this. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of really interesting research into that as well, including just like different versions. You talk about Little Red Riding Hood a lot, and you, you know, uh, Little Red Riding Hood, some of which, you know, where like certain characters die and certain characters don't die. And um, that was really interesting too because i you know i don't like to me when and i'm a fairy tale person but for some reason little red riding hood for me it's like well you know what, what i remember from childhood is like well there's the bloody version where the huntsman pops the wolf open and takes everybody out who apparently has not been digested or you know they're eaten and <laughs> I wasn't really thinking about the different nuances of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I became interested. There's a very early oral storytelling of Little Red Riding Hood where she, that was maybe originally told, women would be telling it to their to their daughters, perhaps. There was a sort of had this tradition of a story that was told to help teach fear and teach protection. And in that version, the girl escapes. She basically is with the wolf and she sort of says, I have to go pee. <laughs> And he's like, uh, you can't do that. And she's like, no, 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 really, I have to do. And she goes outside and like leaves. And that felt so revelatory to me. Like that's a story of escape and of cunning. And it creates a totally different girl, I'll put that in quotes, um, but that idea and, you know, the wolf follows her home, but he doesn't find her and nobody kills him. There's not like a big 
um, okay, now we're going to like stone the wolf. It's just the, it, she escapes. And I was, I was really interested in how that story later by um, royalty essentially got changed into a story that taught a different kind of girl. It taught that a girl needed to be saved and that she was going to be, um, she was going to invite a threat and be too dumb to save herself essentially. And that to me was like a very toxic thread that actually was not the, the oldest. So that was interesting. Right, because the, and then the idea of her like wearing red and having like, you know, like she's like, like considered spoiled and <sighs> wanton, you know, because she's out there flashing herself out in red and inviting mm -hmm. this, yeah, mm -hmm. um, which obviously is not something, you know, when you're being told these stories, you're not reading between, as a child, at least, you're mm -hmm. not really reading between the lines, and you don't really, you know, I mean, you don't really think about it in that sense, mm -hmm. you're like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, like, she's wearing red, okay, um, mm -hmm. but this is coming from a very different time and a very different mm -hmm. place. Well, and I think the I was really, I felt the same way where I was like, I'm not living my adult life thinking like, what would Little Red Riding Hood do? But that story is metabolized in my own narrative of what it means to be out, to be maybe alone among strangers. Um, I'm very aware of that. And I, there were, you know, a couple experiences where I thought, okay, I'm here researching the wolf as a um, re researcher, as a journalist, as a reporter, like I'm, I'm on a train and I'm just doing this with my scientific hat on. And then maybe I had an experience with a sort of another passenger on the train that was threatening to me and it, um, I go into it in the book, but suddenly it was like, well, that story is actually affecting my ability to talk about real wolves, that this sort of, these symbolic stories are there. So yeah, I think Little Red Riding Hood, um, you know, there were so many sides that once I sort of bent closer to that story and looked at it, I was thinking like, she is, it's also the story of somebody who's really adored and somebody who the woodsman comes in and wants to save. And I started thinking about all of the women and, you know, non-binary people and all of the victims who are not, nobody does want to step in for them or culturally, you know, they don't um, maybe occupy that same role as Little Red, who's cute and blonde and small and adored. Um, and so what does that tell us about how um bodies are protected or who who we protect and so that story ended up feeling like it actually if you pulled on one thread um it said a lot about other sort of societal narratives around predator and prey that i'd grown up with without really examining which is interesting because you also talk about like how in like nazi germany like hitler kind of uh was like you know i mean there's a lot of propaganda but like was sort of like elevated in various propaganda pieces as like the savior of Little Red Riding Hood. And I mean, there's all sorts of terrible subtext with that. Uh, though we do know that um, specifically like the Grimm's fairy tales and everything Germanic, he tried to sort of adopt into like the cultural uh, fabric of Germany being superior, whatever. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's just this really interesting in general and then like so these are all like symbolic wolves and like how they've been used and um sort of misused you obviously like werewolves are a crazy that that's like a whole sub topic that we can go into but we don't have the time for yes, um but um i i found that really 
interesting but then at the same time like you have um what you going back to what you talked about in the beginning um the idea of reintroducing wolves into the wild and that being sort of controversial in and of itself if you want to just chat a little bit about that mm-hmm. yeah i think that's so well said like there really are these two different strands and i think in the book i wanted to bring in real wolves as well, like a real embodied, um, I wanted the reader to feel like they're maybe standing beside a wolf or kind of in the wolf's, almost like there's a sort of GoPro on the wolf's head to the degree that I can walk with this wolf and also be aware that like you can't fully occupy that headspace. So real wolves kind of come in and out of this book almost the way that they do when I was following them in real life. Like if a wolf has a collar, uh, which is what biologists will do for the state, maybe there's a, a new wolf, they'll try to trap Uh, trap it and put a collar on it and that collar then helps ranchers they can get notifications like hey you get a text like this wolf or 48 is coming towards your area and maybe they can help gather their cows into an area and it also helps uh, biologists track where wolf packs are going and where they're maybe mating or if there's new pups and keeping count on populations so that was happening in Oregon um, around the time that I started studying wolves. And I was very interested in sort of the the way that that was talked about was often that wolves are coming back and they're supported by city dwelling environmentalists. I put this all in kind of air quotes. Um, And the people rurally don't like wolves and feel threatened by them. And that was the kind of oversimplification that I saw. And, you know, my grandfather had, he was from the Bay Area. He wasn't like a you know, multiple generations of Oregon farmer, but he also had sheep Um, and he had a herd of sheep. And my dad grew up like having to bring in these baby lambs that had been sort of uh, attacked by coyotes and sewing them up in the barn. He has these memories of that. And I was never involved in something that hands-on, but I certainly was, was, I was intimately involved with the, the lambs and the sheep and all the farm animals growing up. And we'd, you know, be nursing lambs in the bathtub. And I really understood the way that you could really love a farm animal, even if um, maybe that animal was destined for your freezer and you were going to eat it one day, <laughs> you still loved it like a pet uh, in some ways. And so that I felt like I was interested in sort of breaking down the idea of it just being a really simple narrative around who loved the wolf, who hated the wolf. And in fact, doing interviews for this, I met many livestock producers who were really in awe of the wolf as an animal. And um, one producer who actually had kept a wolf as a pet way back in the day when that was sort of more normalized and like I never expected that he was his he'd lost a lot of cows to wolves and he was still kind of marveling at them and also grieving at the effect of his livestock so I was interested in highlighting those stories um, because I do think as wolves are repopulating America. I think a a wolf just stepped through New York maybe a couple months ago. There's some, you know, the conversations are continuing and I think we really need sort of other stories beside just the, um, this is two sides of a cultural divide in America fighting off. I, I was skeptical of that. What are some of your favorite things that you sort of discovered pulling on these threads and going down these rabbit holes? That's a great question. Um, yeah, curiosity is definitely my engine, I would say, as a writer. It's what most inspires me. Um, 
I mean, there were some fascinating things I'm thinking a, b a little bit about um, early werewolf stories. I was trying to trace where those came from, for example. And one of the things I found was that, you know, there was real evidence perhaps that um, people who thought they were wolves had ingested maybe a toxic plant or there was questions around mental illness. Um, even with some of these the stories around children perhaps being adopted by wolves, which maybe were sort of popularized in Rudyard Kipling. Um, and there's some of those quite popular stories from the mid 20th century. Um, there's now later questions about maybe those children were autistic and there were some of those signs. And so I became really interested in how um, narratives around wolves or werewolves actually were sort of a cloak to talk about things that were harder to talk about, um, mental illness or sexual assault, like a woman has gone out, she's met a werewolf. Well, what what actually did happen was like some somebody who was legible at one point to her transformed and something violent happened and then he's just the guy down the road again and like is that actually that's a werewolf story too but people weren't talking about that hundreds of years ago necessarily so it became um a way of sort of studying in looking at the wolf uh, looking at these narratives around how we talk around around fear and protection um and also just like these great Evidence, um, some questions around werewolves are also tied to rabies, for example, like maybe this wolf had rabies and it was acting really erratic and charging people and maybe that sort of it helped it felt like a werewolf. And I learned that rabies hadn't really existed in the Americas until it came over with the colonists. So rabies itself was a sort of um, evidence of that that colonialism and that danger towards the indigenous peoples here and so all of the ways that um i yeah it quickly became like this web of wolves um and the stories we tell about them is connected to so many larger factors um stories around gender and race and colonialism and nationalism and how statehood um so fascinating you talk a little bit, I mean, you were just mentioning the whole thing about like some people might have ingested um, some sort of toxin. I mean, you know, you get the whole like berserker thing where, you know, like people would go into battle ingest ingesting something. And that's a whole other side to that, too. Yep, totally. I think this idea that we have um a different self inside of us you know there's this popular meme right now like inside of you there are two wolves um and i think that actually does come from sort of the, it traces very far back that there's like this quote civilized self and this like animal self and i sort of don't believe that there's these two distinct selves but you look at so many of these stories i mean what is a werewolf but like turning from oneself to another and then turning back and like this idea barry lopez in his wonderful book of wolves and men talks about the idea of theriophobia which is like fear of the beast within oneself and i thought about that a lot like we sometimes can't talk about violence in ourselves so we like project it outward onto a wolf or say this I, under the influence, I was this other creature. Um, and that becomes a way of sort of separating it from this, you know, quote, civilized self. So this book was awesome. Um, are you writing something else right now? What else, uh, What are you up to um, now that this is about to come out soon? 
Yeah, this has been a project for like 10 years. So it's, I feel like there's a lot of just like a dog, like shaking the water off after a bath. I'm like, still got all these wolf facts clinging to me that I'm thinking around. But I am interested now, in some ways, I wrote this book when I was in a very anxious period in my own life. And I was trying to grapple with the way I thought about fear and why I thought about it. And now I'm thinking about love, which in some ways is like what comes after fear, like that idea of connection to others and that as a sort of um, unifying force. Um, so I'm thinking about love and uncertainty and environmental change. And I guess that's all I'll say right now, but um, similarly kind of thinking across disciplines and in some of these different modes. So. Very cool. Um, I want to thank you so much. Um, this was really interesting. It, it was, again, it was one of those that um, it, it, when it came up, I was like, this is really, this is, this sounds like a really refreshing read. And I love that you talk a little bit about fear. I mean, the last few years, you know, the pandemic in general and this unseen fear, it's been pretty um, prominent. And I think that, um, you know, it's really interesting to sort of go back and look at it from that perspective. Well, thank you for saying that. I'm glad it resonated. And I do think, unfortunately, we are in a moment where sort of the uncertainty of what is out there is really clear. And I think it was actually helpful to read some of these early stories about sort of uncertainty in the Middle Ages and how like the wolf as a representation of the threat became um, sort of a political tool because it was easier than talking about another fear. And um, I think, you know, plagues and illnesses were for a long time associated with wolves, kind of linguistic and also saying, oh, the wolves are going to bring the plague in because they're eating the dead bodies. And like the sort of metaphors of wolves and sickness, um, it, it was pretty interesting to work on this book during the pandemic. And I, I hope that we're going to live with wolves in a, in a different <laughs> a different way now. But um, yeah, I would love to help people um, think about their own relationship with fear and maybe at what cost they carry that fear to the world. Where did they learn that from? And is it worth carrying or worth examining more? Thank you so much. Uh, once again, this was Jessica with Turn the Page Podcast. My guest was... Erica Berry. Thanks so much, Jessica. You're welcome. We are going to close this chapter of Turn the Page. It's time to close this chapter of Turn the Page. Join us for the next episode.